Okay, it's time for the kids to come on up front and have a seat here for our children's message. Come on up, everyone. Good to see everyone today. Hello, hello. All right, find a spot to sit. You come. Good. So as we start this morning, Pastor Jeremy said he had a special gift for me for the children's message. So let's let's see what what he might have. Got you a dish of ice cream, and I hope you really, really, really enjoy it. Wow! Thanks, a dish of ice cream with hot fudge on top. Yeah, that's nice, right? I don't know. I guess I could eat it. I'm not too sure if I should, though. I might freeze my tongue on the ice cream, right? Yeah, yeah, it's real. I may freeze my tongue on the ice cream or get a brain freeze. That would be really bad. Of course, I could burn my tongue on the hot fudge too. So that, that wouldn't be good either. He, he did tell me to enjoy it though, didn't he? So maybe I'll try just, just a little bit and see how it goes. Mmm, that's pretty good. That's really good actually. But you know what? I, I really shouldn't eat this probably until I do something really nice for Pastor Jeremy since he gave it to me, you know. I should probably do something really important for him before I would enjoy this ice cream. So maybe I should like go clean his office up for him uh, before I have it or you know what, that that actually might not be enough to, to deserve this nice gift he's given me. I should maybe go mow his lawn and wash his car or something before I could enjoy this, um, you know, because it might not, be, might not be good enough. So, you know what, maybe I should just set it aside and, and not have any at all, just leave it there. You know, he did tell me to enjoy it, though, so um, maybe I'll just come back once in a while and get a, a little taste, but, but not too much all at once, because I might not be able to do that. So maybe I should just keep my distance from it. What do you think? Eat it all. all? Let me ask you this. If Pastor Jeremy brought you a bowl of ice cream with hot fudge on it and told you to enjoy it, would you just set it aside and let it sit there? No, what would you do? You would eat it? Do you think you would enjoy it? Yeah, you'd probably enjoy it. Yeah, it's a gift. You'd probably eat it and enjoy it, right? So this bowl of ice cream here, this represents our Christian faith, right? God has given us lots and lots of blessings in Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with forgiveness of sins. He's blessed us with eternal life. He's blessed us with families. He's blessed us with a, a great fam, a church family, family of other believers. The Bible says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, right? All of these things, all these wonderful blessings are ours in Christ, and God tells us to take it all in and just enjoy it, right? And that's what we should do. We should be joyful in all of God's blessings to us. But you know what? Many people don't do that. Many people handle it like I was going to handle this bowl of ice cream. They kind of just set it aside. They're not too sure, right? Many people don't trust God enough and, and just enjoy the blessings they have. They wonder if God is trying to fool them somehow, right? Or if these blessings are really for them, right? Maybe these blessings are for other people, but 
really don't apply to me, right? And so people, we can question all those things. And all those responses come from a lack of faith, right? A lack of believing what God has said and acting upon it, not really trusting God. So when God says his words that all these blessings, all these spiritual blessings are ours in Christ Jesus, and we are to enjoy them, many people question and doubt, and that's due to a lack of faith, lack of trusting God. So God desires for us to trust him in faith, to receive all of his blessings, and to receive them joyfully, and then to enjoy them, all right? But some people set it aside like this bowl of ice cream. So the next time you're enjoying a bowl of ice cream, because your mom and dads will most likely give you a bowl of ice cream this afternoon, right? I mean, they're probably going to do that. So the next time you are enjoying a bowl of ice cream, also think about how you can receive and enjoy all of God's blessings that come to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Can you do that? Can you remember that next time you have ice cream? All right. Good job. Thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. All right, uh, we are going to continue on that theme that Pastor Jeff set up very well and talk about enjoying God who has given us this great gospel hope. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 37, 4. Psalm 37, verse 4. I'm going to be in several texts this morning, so we won't really camp in one, but this text gets to the <clears throat> main theme. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. You might remember, that's it, delight yourself in the Lord. You might remember a few months ago, maybe it's been a year or more now, when I was preaching through Ecclesiastes. Anybody remember that? You do? I did. I preached through the whole book at one time. The uh, main reason I preached through Ecclesiastes is because of the main point of it is Ecclesiastes 9.7, go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. The last line is the gospel. God has approved already what you do, that is in Christ. We have this gift of righteousness so that whatever we do is seen by God through the lens of Christ, and so we're approved. Because of that, Eat with joy. Drink with merriment. So the gospel, a right response to it is to enjoy, to have joy, to delight ourselves in all that God has given us. So Christians should be then the most happy people on the face of the earth. Now, I don't know who started this silliness, but Somebody makes a great distinction between joy and happiness. Right? Joy is this deep-seated, unchanging reality, and happiness is light. So I'm using them interchangeably. Um, let's not get hung up on a word. What I mean is, because of God's grace to you, you have every reason to be happy, to be delighted, to enjoy. And so because the last two weeks have been on the gospel, the first week is God is great, He has saved us. He's done everything necessarily. And last week was God is good in love. I want to get at joy this morning and urge you towards joy. So can you handle that? All right. Hope so. 
Let me pray, and then I want to take the last two weeks and talk about how they relate to our joy. Let's pray. God, teach us your ways, your statutes, that we would keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we might keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the paths of your commands that we might, might delight in them. And so, God, please do that now. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so if you remember, the last two weeks have been God is God. That is, in uh, this gospel, he has saved us from beginning to end. He's done it all. The Father has planned our salvation. The Son has accomplished it in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the Spirit comes and applies it to us. That is, God is absolutely sovereign in our salvation. He did it all. And then, uh, in doing it all, the main thing he has done is provided through the blood of his Son forgiveness of our sins. So those have been the two things. God is God in the gospel. And God is good in forgiving us. So what I want to do is take that idea of forgiveness and relate it to joy. And then take the idea of God as God and relate it to joy. Those two things and give you every reason to be happy in the Lord. So first text is Psalm 32 verse 1. If you turn there, relating forgiveness to joy. Psalm 32 verse 1. Blessed is the one, is the man whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. All right, so the word blessed there, another translation of it is happy. Happy. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, the context of this psalm isn't an appeal to an unbeliever, who has not yet experienced any forgiveness in the Lord, urging him or her to come to the Lord and receive forgiveness. The context is not here evangelism. He's not preaching to unbelievers here. He's he's preaching to believers. This is David. Uh, This is David uh, after uh, his sin with Bathsheba uh, and her husband Uriah, where he uh, committed adultery with the woman that murdered her husband. And, and so he's here preaching to himself, preaching to other believers on how to respond to sin in your life. You see in verses 3 and 4, he kept silent about his sin. He didn't repent of it. He kept it internal. He groaned all the day long. God's hand was heavy upon him. He was feeling guilt. He was uh, experiencing right shame. And then what did he do? He acknowledges sin in verse 5. He didn't cover his iniquity. He confessed it, and he was forgiven. And what is he experiencing as a result of the Lord's forgiveness of this great sin? Happiness. Joy. Happy is the one. David knows this because he's experienced it. He remained silent and unrepentant, and it ate away like rot at his bones. He was internally discombobulated. He was down, depressed, whatever. And then he confessed his sin. He received the Lord's forgiveness. And now happiness is the result. Happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So the point is, of course, there is great joy in experiencing the Lord's forgiveness. There is joy in forgiveness. So you have two choices in this psalm. You can 
continue on in your sin. You can continue on in your sin either lying to yourself that it isn't sin, which you do, right? You commit sin and you just um, talk yourself out of it actually being sin. You can do that in a couple ways. You can compare it to how much good you've done, right? I'm, I'm good. I've done this much good and so that kind of equals out. I don't have to worry about my sin. Or you can kind of create in your mind different levels of sin, and this, this sin is just a little sin. It's just a misdemeanor kind of sin. It's probably not even really a sin, so no big deal. And so you, you can just do that. Or you can just kind of just cram it down, go about your day as if nothing has ever happened. Or you can just grit your teeth and bear it. So, so that's one choice. You can just cram it down. Or the other choice is you confess it, get it out, be done with it, and move on and enjoy it. Later on in the psalm, he'll say that many are the sorrows of the wicked. Verse 10. Right? Now we know that sometimes on this earth, we as Christians complain to the Lord like all believers have throughout Scripture of how the wicked prosper. But generally... Those who live in unrepentant sin before the Lord will have sorrow, especially in eternal future. And then he says, but those who trust in the Lord, right? but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Now, trusting the Lord here in this context means confessing your sin. The one who trusts in the Lord doesn't remain like an unrepented, wicked person. The one who trusts in the Lord turns to the Lord with his sin and confesses it. And then he can be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, shout for joy, all you upright of heart. So here in the psalm, one who is glad in the Lord, one who is rejoicing, one who is righteous, one who is upright in heart is one who is confessing his sin. So define this biblically. What is an upright Christian? What is a righteous Christian? It's not a sinless Christian. It's not one who hasn't sinned. But what is it? It's one who has confessed his sin. An upright person, a righteous person in this psalm, isn't somebody who's just a cut above everybody else in less sin, but one who has committed adultery and murder and confessed it. Is described here as an upright, righteous person. So one of two choices. You can not deal with your sin and then deal with it long term, or you can deal with it immediately confessing the Lord and have joy. So there is then in this gospel joy held out for you in the forgiveness of your sins. You see that? You see how good the Lord is to you? You see the transaction that's taken place? You have only contributed to your relationship with the Lord sin. The Lord has sent His Son, hung Him on a cross where He bled and died for your sin, and then in your day-in, day-out fellowship with Him, calls you to turn to Him and ask for forgiveness, and what do you get? Joy. Delight. So in this great gospel of forgiveness, you not only get forgiveness, you get the joy of forgiveness. But you have to recognize how significant this forgiveness is 
to understand the joy of it. You and I are David, right? Just deal with the issue of adultery. Jesus said, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, has committed adultery in his heart. That's us, that's you, that's me. And the Lord, when we turn to Him for forgiveness, forgives it. Look at the extent of the forgiveness here. The one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, forgiveness here is defined as the Lord not holding it against you anymore. It's done with. That is, forgiveness deals with uh, the punishment due your sin. We know that all the sin and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. The death here, of course, doesn't mean just physical cessation of life. It doesn't mean God just physically causes you to cease to exist. The, the death here is separation from God. It is separation from all that is good, all that is right, all that is pure, all that is lovely, all that is pleasurable. The wages of sin is separation from that which is life. That's what the wages of sin is, death. And here, the Lord, in His grace, through Christ's blood, does not hold your sin against you in that He will deal with it as He should. Because He he did deal with it as He should, right? In Christ. And so there's joy there. Do you see that? Do you see how what he has freed you from, the price, the consequence, the cost? If you remember from last week, you realize it wasn't cheap for him to do this. Is that the price of his only son hanging on the cross? So look at the extent of it. He has forgiven all of our transgression. He has covered all of our sin. And you see again in this language that this isn't just the divine sweeping it under the rug. This isn't just a wink and a nod and I'm good and you're good and water under the bridge, right? This is the Father sending His only Son to die on your behalf, to take your sin upon Himself and shed His blood in your place. And because of that, your transgressions are forgiven. Because of that, your sin is covered. Because of that, He is not counting against you any of your iniquity. And so we are blessed. We are happy. Does that make you happy? Is there any greater thought than all of your sin is forgiven? All of it. And the greater you understand the the sheer magnificence of the Lord, and the greater you understand the, the basis of your sin, the greater the joy is. It's one thing for you to forgive your spouse who's just your equal. One thing to forgive somebody who's just like you. It's a whole entirely different thing for God in heaven to forgive you for all of your sin at the price of His Son. And that's what you have. Now, there is one wrong response to this forgiveness. Pastor Jeff hit it. It's guilt. Now, I have to nuance this just a touch here. 
there is in our world a full-on power play against any and all shame and guilt. There is right shame and there is right guilt. David was rightly ashamed and rightly guilty of his sin. So what I'm talking about here is not that right response of guilt and shame to actual sin that you have yet to deal with. That's good. That is a good gift of God. Okay? So if you have sin that you've committed as defined in Scripture, thou shalt not lie, and if you're lying, it is a good thing, a gift of God, to, to feel rightly ashamed and guilty over your lying. Kids, if you are making mom's life hard, you should be ashamed. How shameful it is for you to dishonor your mom. You should experience shame and guilt there. I'm not talking about that. Okay, so if we got that right, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this false guilt. I am talking about you who have lied. You admit you're lying to the Lord. You go to Him and say, God, I, I've lied. Maybe even go to the person you lied against and you admit your fault there and you've lied and, and you know of the Lord's forgiveness, but you don't feel what Christ did on the cross is yet adequate enough. It's so like Pastor Jeff said, you feel like, well, I better, I better do something more. I better make myself feel unworthy for a while. And, and you are here in church and everybody's singing and you're internally going, I, 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 I shouldn't experience this joy yet because I'm so bad. I need to beat myself up for a little while. I, I, I am not as loved as everybody yet because I'm so bad and I need at least another 24 to 36 hours of making myself seem miserable because Christ isn't sufficient. That's what I'm talking about. Where you wallow in your guilt. You maybe even physically cause yourself pain. Maybe you withhold good from yourself. You don't eat something good. You don't do something good because you're so bad. Maybe you do a bunch of good things to try to balance it out. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, was he being hyperbolic there? Oh. When Christ rose from the dead, ascended the right hand from the, of the Father, and sat down proving that his work was complete. Nothing more to do. He sat down. It's finished. Was he saying that in addition to the work I've done on the cross and in the resurrection, in the ascension, the season, you need to add to it wallowing in your false guilt? Was he looking at, is he looking down at heaven and you saying, yes, I am so glad you see how serious your sin is in that not only in addition to my death on the cross, you add to it not eating something nice. Oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm glad you're not experiencing the joy of my forgiveness like everybody else because you've done something really bad and my death on the cross plus your not singing like everybody else makes me so happy with you. Is Christ's work enough or isn't it? Is Christ's work enough or isn't it? Is what Christ did in dying on the cross and shedding his blood sufficient or isn't it? 
one wrong response to the goodness of God in forgiving your sin is you adding to what Christ done, your own foolish, self-centered guilt. It's just, sometimes we need to repent of our repentance. This is one of those. So, a right response to the gospel is joy, is happiness. You have been forgiven of all of your sins. Smile, sing, eat, drink, and be merry. Come, welcome into the joy of the kingdom of God. So that's the right response to the forgiveness of God. Now let's look at the right response to the godness of God. Turn to Isaiah 40, if you would. In the first sermon I did in this three-part series, I preached out of Romans 9, and we hit on the doctrine of (gasps) election. Because we got to be careful with that. It's all over the Bible, but we need to be careful because we might offend somebody. If, anyways. Um, Charles Spurgeon, uh, if you've heard of Charles Spurgeon, heard of Charles Spurgeon? Yeah? Yeah? English preacher. Um, a lot of what we are as a church is from him. He came to Christ at a young age. When he was about 16, he was in church. I, don't, I think it was on a Sunday morning, and he said he wasn't listening to the preacher at all, but he was thinking about how he became a Christian. So the preacher's up there preaching. Spurgeon is uh, not listening. Um, and he's just he's thinking, how, how did I become a Christian? And, it, and the answer he gave himself was, well, I sought the Lord. And then another question popped into his mind, well, how did I come to seek the Lord? And a truth flashed across his mind that he would, he, he would have never sought God unless some previous in, influence had been working in him to make him seek the Lord. Then Spurgeon thought, well, it was prayer. I sought the Lord because I was praying. And then the question came, well, how did I come to pray? His answer was, well, I was reading the Bible. I was a Bible reader, and the Bible told me to pray. And then, and then the thought came, how did I come to read the Bible? What led me to read the Bible? And then Spurgeon said in his own words, a quote, then in a moment I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace, of sheer, not, now I'm not quoting, of sheer grace of God by which he contributed nothing, Spurgeon contributed nothing, God did it all. Now I'm quoting again. So, from, or so the whole doctrine of grace opened to me. And from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Spurgeon, by God's grace, stumbled upon the truth that we read in Jonah 2.9 or in Psalm 10, salvation belongs to the Lord. From the first sermon, I, I said, God the Father planned it all. God the Son accomplished it. He did the work that accomplished it all. And God the Spirit comes and actually applies what the Father has planned and the Son has accomplished it. So God saves us from beginning to end. 
How did you become a Christian? One of the answers in the Bible is that you repented and believed of your sins. That's true, right? If you do not repent, turn from your sin, agree with God that you are born sinful and do sin, and trust that Christ alone and His work on the cross is all you need for your salvation. If you do not do, not do that, you cannot be saved. How did you come to do that? How did you come to believe that you were actually a a person who has sinned and needed Christ? I think that's a great miracle. For you to believe that you need the Son of God to die in your place because you are such a miserable sinner deserving of God's wrath. How would you ever admit that? Is that not only by the grace of God? Is that not only God doing that? Well, here in Isaiah 40, we see God coming to his people who are in great sin and God coming to comfort them. Comfort, comfort my people. God has removed all of their sins. He he has disciplined all their sin. It's done. And he is the one coming. He He is coming in glory. His word will stand forever. And what is the point of all of this saving work of God? What's the goal of it? What is the one thing that God wants to give us in this great gospel work? Look at verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the city of Judah, Behold, your God. The point of the gospel, of the work of Christ on your behalf, is that you might know and behold God. If you remember from Romans 9, all of this great and high and awesome talk of God's sovereignty and election of God choosing one and not another, of God raising up Pharaoh. The whole point of it is so that God's wrath might be made known and God's mercy might be made known. The whole point of it is that God might be made known as God. Why? So you can delight in Him. Do you know what the end result of your salvation is going to be? Turn to Psalm 16 if you would. In Psalm 16, I think something utterly shocking is happening here. David, the psalmist, is crying out for God's preservation. There are enemies. He's going before God and asking, pleading with the Lord for His care. And God is there. Verse 8. God, God is, he has set the Lord before him. Because God is at his right hand, he not be shaken. Therefore, he is glad. His whole being rejoices. Even his flesh dwells secure. Why? Because he will not abandon him, even in death. Look at verse 11. You, I, I hope that you have an experience here that you can't believe that this is in the Bible. This shouldn't be in the Bible. What I mean is, we as Christians, we're, we're too... Um, I don't know what word to use here. 
we're like too spiritual for this kind of stuff to be in the Bible. We, we, um, we think that Christianity is about being more morose, more dull. If you're having too much fun, it must not be Christian. Look what he writes here in Psalm 1611. You make known to the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, look at this. Please look at this word he uses. At your right hand, there is pleasure <laughs> forever more. Right? <laughs> There's pleasure forever more. Where? Where is this fullness of joy? Where is this pleasure forevermore? Where is it found? Where is it located? Where do you get it? In your presence. At your right hand. In God. Why did Christ come to die? So you could have this. So you could have fullness of joy in his presence, pleasure forevermore in his right hand. <laughs> and somehow Christians would think that it's Christian to not to, to refrain from being too happy. From, to, ref, from, to hold back from having too much pleasure. C.S. Lewis says that the danger with Christians is that we're not satisfied enough. We settle. He says we're like children who can't imagine what it's like to take a holiday, a vacation in northern Wisconsin at a beautiful lake and a beach. And so they content themselves to make mud pies in the dirty alley. We think it's more spiritual to not enjoy all that God has given us to enjoy. That's why I keep saying during the Lord's Supper, during communion, quit looking like you're at a funeral. You're not at a funeral. You're at a wedding feast. If you are at a wedding and you're sitting there like you're at a funeral luncheon, something's wrong. We have been invited by the Lord of hosts to dine at his table, fully forgiven, counted righteous, accepted as full-fledged sons and daughters, and we're acting like somebody died. He did die, but he rose. So enjoy. At his, in his presence, there's fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think we get ourselves so twisted up, even psychologically, to think that if we're having fun, we're doing something wrong. If we're experiencing joy, we're doing something wrong. It's exactly the opposite. Flip over then to Psalm 37.4. And I might end here if you're paying attention. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord. That's it, right? Delight yourself in the Lord. The crazy thing about this verse is that word delight is in the imperative. It's a command. <laughs> You're commanded to, to, to delight yourself. Now, the problem with us, of course, 
is that we, we are committed to our delight. You're lying to yourself if you don't do whatever makes you happy. The problem is that you try to do it in the way that you have defined instead of according to the Lord's way. And you always end up miserable. You try to do things on your own terms. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And if you're not aware, you are Adam and Eve's descendants. And you inherited their stupidity. Don't look in the, in the mirror like Jack Handy and say you're good enough. You should look in the mirror and say, I'm stupid enough. Uh, and, and what you do is what they did. You try to get what God would give you, but you try to get it on your own terms. Delight yourself in the Lord. All right, I'll get delight, but I'm going to do it my way. And it always ends in sorrow and broken stuff and messed up relationships. So God has made you for delight. He has redeemed you for delight, but it's in Him. Now, one wrong response then to this is grumbling. You can respond wrongly to the gospel in in this ungodly, self-centered guilt, but you can also respond to it with grumbling. All right, I'm going to really close now, but let's close with Romans 8. I forgot I had this in here. If God is the God who has done everything necessary for your salvation, if God is the God who has spent His Son on the cross, then grumbling is utter folly. Just look at Romans 8, beginning um, in verse 28. Just look at these truths that are all coming out of the gospel, coming out of what God, who God has revealed Himself to be in sending His Son, in accomplishing your redemption, in sending His Spirit. Here is God. God works everything together for our good. Verse 28. God works everything together for our good. Verse 31, God is for us. Isn't that good? God is for us. So nothing, nothing can prevail over us. Verse 32, God didn't spare His only Son, but gave Him up so He'll give you everything you need. Verse 33, God has justified us in Christ. He has given us Christ's righteous record. And so nothing can ever condemn you. Nothing. Verse 39, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another way to say it is, in God you have been given everything. And nothing can threaten that everything. Everything works for your good. Nothing can come against you and defeat you. God will give you everything you need because he didn't spare his son. God has justified you in Christ so nothing can condemn you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Why would we grumble? Uh, John Patton, missionary to New Hebrides in the South Pacific, in 1858 married Mary Ann Robinson in March. They sailed in May. In the first year there, they built a home and had a son. And on March 3rd, one year after marrying, she died. Three months later, their newborn son died. His wife, before dying, said this, 
I do not regret leaving home and friends. If I had to do it over, I would do it with more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. That is a woman who understands this God in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to hear the words of our Savior, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Because he has given it to us in you, our Savior God, would we respond with joy and happiness and pleasure in you and not at all with false guilt or grumbling. And so, God, may you fill your people with delight in you because you are our God and because you have spent your son. In Jesus' name. The charge is this. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to learn how great and good God is. And the way God has given you to do that is to read your Bible on a daily basis. If you want to know the sovereign greatness of God, read Romans. If you want to know the great love of God and spending His Son on your behalf, read Romans or Isaiah or anything else. Let's read the Bible. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you all of the peace He has purchased with Him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.